Welcome to the BioInsights podcast. Welcome to this episode of the BioInsights podcast. Today, Ilaria Scarfoni and Mike Brewer will be discussing RDNA regulatory requirements and the challenges of the development and validation of RDNA assays for viral vector manufacture. Mike Brewer is the Director and Global Principal Consultant for the Bioproduction Division at Thermo Fisher Scientific. Conducting the interview today is Ilaria Scarfoni, who has worked as a field application specialist in the pharma analytics team at Thermo Fisher Scientific since 2019. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Hello, everybody, and thank you, Mike, for the opportunity of chatting today. So today I will ask you some of the questions I most frequently asked from the gene therapy customers that I have in the field. For a start, Mike, could you give a brief introduction, a brief background on ResDNA testing regulatory requirements in general and how gene therapy products present some particular challenges? Yeah, I think that's a great way to start this, Laria. And, and it's true for recombinant virus that are used in these gene therapy um, um, treatments, there are additional challenges as compared to a MAB manufacturing or monoclonal antibody manufacturing and purification process. Um, specifically, the regulatory guidance on, on host cell DNA is, is there should be less than 10 nanograms of host cell DNA per therapeutic dose. And, and additionally, the size of that DNA, if present, you should be able, you should demonstrate that it's less than two, 200 base pairs in length. And this guidance was essentially carried over from the older guidance um, on host cell DNA regarding manufacturing of cell culture-based vaccines. So for some manufacturers that have been in that space, they may be already familiar with this guidance. Um, and then, you know, additionally for recombinant virus such as AAV, there are multiple DNA residuals of concern depending on the process. This can be host cell DNA, uh, plasmid vector or helper virus DNA that are part of the process. So multiple DNA assays may be required for full characterization of the of the levels and then the and the capability of your purification process to reduce the levels of these. DNAs, as well as, you know, you need to have a good size assessment assay. Uh, DNA fragment size determination is expected, and that may need to be done at different points in the, in the process than quantitation of the remaining host cell DNA at the end of production, where in some cases the levels of that DNA may be too low to enable accurate size assessment. And then finally, an additional challenge with AAV and, and post cell and vector DNA is, is recombinant AAV has, has been shown to encapsulate fragments of, of both vector and host cell DNA. And these the size of these encapsulated fragments can be significant, up to a 5 kb. So that can create challenges, including you know, being able to reach that 10 nanogram per per dose limit for high dosage formulations in these gene therapy applications. And finally, using cell lines that are known to contain potential oncogenes, 
which is E1A or SV40T antigen in the case of 293-based processes. Presence of these genes and potentially the size of the gene if present should be characterized. So these are, you know, all the additional considerations that that manufacturers must must take into account for these for these viral vector manufacturing processes. All right, thank you, Mike. So before we analyze each of these particular concerns one by one, let's discuss some of the challenges of the development and validation of residual DNA analytical assay in general, and in particular for gene therapy. Sure, and let's let's start first with development. Development of these assays for sensitive, accurate quantitation of host cell DNA and other DNA residuals requires specialized expertise. It takes considerable time. Um, you have to develop multiple documents, including the method SOP, preparation and qualification of critical reagents, equipment SOPs, development and qualification reports for the new method, and then validation protocols and execution of that validation and generation of a report. Um, if an organization has the time and expertise, then certainly in-house development can be considered. But given that in this era, there are fully integrated, and that includes sample prep, standard DNA, annotation assay, and even application-specific software and kit-based solutions for host cell uh, and other DNA residuals that are now available on the market. Um, in the case of the applied biosystems ResDNA seq kits, they're supported by expert application scientists and regulatory support teams, um, such as you and I, Laurie. So the process of implementation of a host cell DNA assay purchased from a vendor can be accelerated dramatically. A new user can be generating valid results in a few weeks, as opposed to the months to years required for in-house development. My view on this, and I'm sure it's shared with, with many others, is that if a high quality kit is available for your application, use it and then spend your time and resources generating results, not on development of a method. And one other thing to keep in mind, a, a rigorous, well-designed study to demonstrate robust host cell DNA clearance and purification process can require analysis of a large number of samples. So a method that can be automated such as sample preparation can be a huge value and efficiency driver. Sample preparation method used in the ResDNA kits is based on magnetic beads. And so there are two options for, for automating that workflow. So that's an important consideration as you look to the future. And then finally, moving to validation. For most applications, host cell DNA testing is considered a quantitative test for impurities and should be validated as such per the ICH-Q2-R1 guidance on, on validation of analytical procedures. And typically, the test performed for a quantitative method should include accuracy, precision, both repeatability and intermediate precision, limit of quantitation or sensitivity, um, specificity, range, and linearity. Uh, robustness of a method should also be demonstrated, but it's acceptable to do that as part of method development. Um, or it can be, you know, that data can be supported by the vendor if you're using a solution such as ResDNA-seq, which we have extensive um, 
data demonstrating robustness that was done as part of our you know, method development process and certainly can be shared during a regulatory review. All right, so speaking about validation or qualification, how does the term official scientific development validation study help ensure the quality of the kits? And how does this differ from the valid validation of the method for regulatory approval? Yeah, and this is another good topic. I mean, as part of our development process, we have a, a, a very well established and defined process and the, the, the test that we put a new method through as we're developing it and then as we get near completion, um, you know, demonstrating the robustness of it and what do, you know, small deviations to the recommended method, how do those affect performance? And we can, you know, we keep those um, all well documented and, as I mentioned before, can be available for, for referencing during a regulatory review. When I use or hear the term qualification when discussing analytical methods, I consider that step is kind of the initial demonstration in a fairly rigorous manner that the method will perform for the purpose intended. Can it accurately quantitate DNA recovered from a key sample types or from the key sample matrices? Can it detect a contaminant in a key process sample, etc.? Qualification could also be referred to as a pre-validation and you know, generating a set of data that enables design of a validation study and, and importantly to help in setting appropriate acceptance criteria for that validation study. And then importantly, you know, the development stage of, of your manufacturing process and your clinical process should be considered um, where and when use of a qualified method is acceptable for testing and when a validated method is required. It can be acceptable to use a qualified method for testing at preclinical and early clinical stage uh, of your products and then following success in advancing the product candidate through clinical trials at some point validation will be required. In my opinion that in, when selecting analytical methods Choose a method early that offers the performance required and, and looks to be able to be, as my term is validatable, and critically a method that regulators will accept following validation of, and submission and inclusion in, in your CMC package. Choosing the right method early is critical so you don't have to go back and, and redevelop or switch to a new method late in the process where there's lots of tasks that need to be accomplished to file an application for approval of a new product. Um, and working closely with an experienced vendor that can provide analyst training on the workflow, the equipment validation support, provide examples of validation study design, um, drug master files when appropriate, um, provide support of regulatory reviews and has a record of success um, should be a key consideration when you're selecting an analytical solution. Uh, and that's where I think, you know, Thermo Fisher in particular is very strong. I mean, the team we have um, supporting our products, I think, is unmatched in the industry. Um, and in certain cases here, as we're talking about host cell DNA testing, as well as, as other DNA residuals, I mean, cases like 
the ResDNA Seq product, the vendor can be your partner, and that will accelerate timelines and provide confidence and success. Right. Thank you very much, Mike. Now I would like to take the conversation more focused on gene therapy, ResDNA testing in particular. So let's try to address a couple of specific questions I'm often asked by the customers. How do we help simplify the process of measuring vector DNA? And how do we address the challenges of fragment sizes, sizing sorry, on oncogene? Yeah, these are, this is a great topic too, because in the past people hadn't given much consideration to testing for these DNA residuals as well as sizing. Um, so to support that, we have recently introduced three new products um, for recombinant virus manufacturing. One of these is a combination SF9 and baculovirus residual DNA assay, and this is for insect cell culture-based manufacturing processes. We, we now have an assay for residual vector DNA for vectors that are used in the recombinant AAV workflow. Um, and, and this assay targets an element common in many plasmid vectors, the canamycin resistance gene. And then finally, we have an assay for detection of the E1A gene that's present in 293 cell-based processes. And certainly that gene would be undesirable if it was present in the final product. Additionally, the E1A assay also enables size assessment of the E1A gene and can also be used to assess the general size and quantity of host cell DNA fragments as you go through the purification process. This is accomplished by use of a primer design for detection and quantitation of three distinct size classes of the DNA in the sample. They, the larger size of 476 base pair amplicon, uh, intermediate size of 200 base pair amplicon, and finally, uh, an assay specific for small fragments. Um, which is important because this is uh, an 86 base pair amplicon, which is is below the regulatory guidance of, of less than 200 base pair fragments. All right, thank you, Mike. Now I have a very last question before to conclude this podcast. Do you have any idea on how to address copy number versus mass concern? So yeah, this is a great question. Um, because for some analytes, such as host cell DNA, the regulatory guidance has always been the mass of the analyte in, in the sample. For other analytes now, such as the residual vector or EF, E1A fragments, may be more appropriate to report that result in copies of the analyte. Uh, and really the most important consideration here is you use a method that can accurately generate results and data that's aligned with the regulatory guidance or requirements. And you know, importantly, if you're using an assay like quantitative real-time PCR, uh, the results can be um, generated and reported in, both, in either copy or mass of DNA, depending on how you design the experiment. Right. Thank you very much, Mike, for this interesting chat. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Mike and Iliara for a fascinating discussion, and thank you to our audience for listening today. We hope you'll join us again soon. This episode was brought to you in partnership with Thermo Fisher Scientific. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
don't forget to subscribe to the Bio Insights podcast.